Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Look, I've been saying it for years, but Linda Berry is a genius. She's a comics artist and writer. She started her career as an undergrad at Evergreen College. She made a regular comic there called Ernie Pook's Comic. I hope I'm saying that right. It ran for almost 30 years. She's written over a dozen books, some of them novels, most of them compilations, and more recently, some how-to books. Her work is usually at least somewhat autobiographical. She talks about her childhood, her family, her past relationships. The stories are funny but also poignant. Lately, she's been teaching. She's an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and she has published a book about it, sort of. It's called Making Comics. came out last year. It is amazing. It's her third instructional book about creativity. At the heart of it is a belief that Linda has. Anyone can draw. Anyone can make comics. The struggle, she says, is putting pen to paper and getting out of your head long enough to actually make something. That very practical philosophy, combined with a 40-plus year career of making brilliant comics, helped Linda earn a MacArthur Genius Grant late last year. Like I said, genius. Anyway, enough introduction. It's time to welcome back to the show my friend, the brilliant one and only Linda Barry. Let's get into it. Linda Barry, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to have you back on the show. I'm delighted to be back. And congratulations on being an official genius. I'm very happy for you. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Linda, why did you want to write a book specifically about comics to follow up your, what is now becoming a, a string of books about how to be creative? Well, One of the reasons was because of everybody that I've ever met who, when they find out that I'm a cartoonist, always says, I wish I could draw. And I know that people can draw. And I, um, after teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for about seven years, I kind of had a bunch of recipes for how to make that happen. And so that's the, the book, Making Comics, is kind of like a recipe book or, or a cookbook um, that's full of these exercises. And I also wanted to make a book that if there was a teacher that wanted to teach making comics, but they felt self-conscious about their own drawing, which is usually enough to make people not teach something, I wanted to make a book that was sort of anyone anyone could do it and that anybody who wanted to use this book to lead a class could do that. Or you could use the book and pretend you were in my class. So there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, about my attendance policy and seating <laughs> and grades. Even though I know that people having it won't be in my class, I feel like it, it it can scare you a little bit that there's a teacher there saying you have to be here on time and you have to attend class. But mainly I just wanted to um, make a book of these exercises that um, over the years have always seemed to work and not just work to help people make drawings, but work to actually make them feel good while they were doing it. Have you ever been self-conscious of your own drawing? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's part of the deal. I think that's always a little bit part of it. And um, self-consciousness, on one hand, feels terrible, but there's always a little bit of a thrill with it, too. And so I think that, you know, 
when you're drawing, it's always kind of a live performance, especially if you're drawing with real paper and real ink versus on a tablet that has that step back feature or the delete button. If you're going forward, it's sort of like a live performance and it's a record of how your hand is moving. That's what a drawing is, a record of how your a human hand is moving and sort of the traces it left behind. So there's always a, an element of uh, freak out in it, but that's the part that's good. If I can show people that that's the part that's fun and the fastest way that I do, can do that is by asking them to uh, close their eyes and I ask them to draw something for me for one minute, not opening their eyes. And I always ask them to draw a bacon and egg breakfast with um, coffee and silverware with their eyes closed for one minute. And when people do it, they're freaking out and then they open their eyes and they're always super happy. They always start laughing because they can see the bacon and eggs and the it's all there. They didn't see it happen. And then I ask them to do the same thing, but draw a mermaid. And <laughs> the kind of laughing that happens after that is even more hilarious because the mermaid's definitely there, but she's there in all these crazy pieces. Like if they lift their pen while they're trying to draw her head and then they can't remember where the head is, so the features might be over an inch or her, the, you know, the coconut shell bra might be on the wrong side of the page, but it's also hilarious. And um, so that to me is a different kind of drawing. There's all kinds of drawings, just like there's all kinds of alcoholic drinks and that um, comic. Are, are a very particular kind, and anybody who can write the alphabet or uh, actually already learned how to make comics, because you know how we call the, the um, letters of the alphabet characters. We all had to learn how to draw those characters, and in the beginning, writing is drawing. So it's getting back to that very basic, and I do think it's a, it's a native human language um, drawing, so it's getting back to that, getting people right back to that. Linda, I like that your go-to metaphor is like there's all different kinds of alcoholic drinks. <laughs> you can say like there's all different kinds of birds or there's all different kinds of fruits, houses. I, <laughs> I guess I'm thinking about the perfect environment for making comics and sometimes it involves <laughs> a couple of drinks. <laughs> so what part of drawing or your own drawing were you self-conscious about? Or are you self-conscious about? Well, if, for instance, if I'm going to draw, like I was drawing this morning, um, I was drawing, looking out the window of my hotel, and there are buildings and cars, and buildings and cars in general tend to be difficult if you're concentrating on perspective or trying to get it to look right. But there is this point where I just move my hands so fast that it's almost like a little kid drawing. And if I can get if I can, if my hand can move faster than me arguing with it, then I'm not self-conscious. But if I'm arguing with my hand and my hand's slowing down because of it, um, that's when I become self-conscious. And that's the beauty of asking people to close their eyes and draw. Because for most people, particularly people who gave up drawing early on, for most people, they can draw for longer with their eyes closed than they can with their eyes open. And, you know, most people quit drawing at about the age of eight or nine when they realized they couldn't draw a nose or hands. And that was it. Like, they just felt washed up. And most people give up then and don't come back. But the cool thing is, for those people who quit drawing at that time, their drawing style is intact from when they were that age. And so for comics, those people have an advantage over people who've drawn the entire time of their life because that drawing style that is still in their hands, that never kind of got educated, um, is just perfect for making original comics. What are the special things about 
comics specifically as a medium, the combination of words and and abstracted pictures? You know, to me, when you put these two things together, um, they have a power, like to me, they have the power of music, you know, where there's lyrics and then there's um, the melody. And when you put those two things together, there is a power. And when you keep them apart, that power is diminished. And the way you find that out is when you're in the eighth grade and you write down all the lyrics to your favorite song because mm-hmm. it, it feels like a poem. What goes up must come down. Spinning wheels have got to go around, right? <laughs> and then you look at it, you look at the lyrics and they're just lame. But somehow when there's music with it, it has this power. And that's how I feel about comics, that comics are this mix of, of words and pictures and also, comics take advantage of the basic human ability to a need to recognize upright human faces um, and and the mood that that face is, and also the body and the position of the body and the position of the hands. That's what human beings are interested in, and we recognize that stuff at an instant. So that's one of the reasons why these just these little marks can actually express someone looking furious or really really scared or really happy or really bored. You can do it in a just a few marks, and almost everyone can do it. Yeah, almost everyone. If you're willing to, if you're willing to give it a try, it really does feel like an expression of some kind of underlying neurological reality that our brains are looking for these specific kinds of patterns, and comics are in the business of delivering those patterns without too much extraneous stuff. And that's why they've been around forever and ever and ever. I mean, when I look at the cave paintings or I look at medieval manuscripts or even just like really, I found these rudimentary drawings that were um, by a kid um, from the 13th century Russia um, that looked just like comics. They actually look like Ivan Brunetti's comics. And so this idea that this, I think this is a very old language. It's a language that um, we've had with us forever. And then at some point it got a name, comics. Why do you think you went into comics and not prose or art, so-called fine art or whatever? I did do both of those things. Uh, I did care about writing prose and I do care about making fine art, but neither of them fly the way comics do. And I also think Part of it was my childhood, and I I came from a house that didn't have books and didn't have... It was just a very troubled house, but my mom was also a kleptomaniac, and um, she worked at a hospital, and she um, her particular... The thing she couldn't resist stealing was scissors, and so she works at a hospital, So and there's like lots of kinds of scissors at hospitals, right, and especially in surgery. So she'd come home with all these berserk scissors, and some of them were really tiny, and then I'd steal scissors from her. <laughs> I still, when I see scissors, I still almost always have an, an urge to steal them. But I would steal these little tiny surgical scissors from her, and it's going to sound sad, but it was actually pretty awesome. Um, and the only thing that we had that, we, that was print was the newspaper. We got the daily paper. And I used to cut out the little characters, the little black and white characters during the the daily strips and keep them in a little secrets uh, tin. And those were my toys. And those were like the little, and they were also small enough to hide from her because she was also in the habit of, if she knew you liked something, to just take it from you. So a lot of it, I feel like I really stared at comics and got really interested in the shapes of comics and the shapes of characters. Because another thing about comics is their silhouettes are really, really important. And so I feel like that 
that was very early for me. I fell in love with that stuff. And I also remember making a promise when I was a kid. Remember when you're a kid and you kind of suddenly understand the concept of for the rest of your life? Like when I first understood that concept, I remember thinking, I'm going to remember something for the rest of my life. And, I, and it was just there was a fence that was across the street from me when I made that vow. So that's what I chose to remember. And I still do remember this <laughs> this fence from when I was like four. But I also knew that there would be this point when I could read. And I looked at the comics and picked the five comics that I was going to read for the rest of my life. Um, And one of them was Family Circus. It's the only one that's left out of the five that I picked. Um, And I still, whenever I see it, absolutely read it and love it with all my heart. What were the five? The five were Brenda Starr, Dondi, Family Circus, (laughs) Apartment 3G, and Prince Valiant. (laughs) Because it just looked like there was so much going on in all of those, you know. Uh, Those, I mean, like, those were the ones you just listed. There's one or two that maybe wasn't in the newspaper when I was a kid, but you pretty much just listed every comic strip that most baffled me as a child. (laughs) I think that's why I picked them. I I mean, I couldn't read the- I remember looking at Prince Valiant and being like- what is this? Right. Well, he looked like a cute guy to me when I was four. You know, it's like, that's the dude with the page boy. But uh, yeah, they, they were baffling. But again, I made those decisions based on the drawings. Family Circus and Dondi were the only ones that had little kids in them. I think Brenda Starr was about to marry the wolf man right when I picked that one for the rest of my life. You know, because, yeah, I still want to marry the wolf man. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, my husband is the closest dream. I could find. Yeah. <laughs> lots and lots of hair everywhere. It's, that's my, if I was running for election, that would be my, <laughs> my slogan. <laughs> my wife once told me her celebrity crush was Benicio Del Toro. It's pretty, that's almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like Benicio. Yes, absolutely. But Chewbacca <laughs> is actually the, the, the top choice. <laughs> I'm a Wookiee hound. (laughs) (laughs) Linda, I didn't know much about the circumstances of your childhood until you described them a little bit in a talk that you gave this past year at our conference, Max FunCon. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was your family when you were a kid? Well, so my mom's from the Philippines. Um, She came to the States when she was in, uh, she was probably in her early 20s. And then the rest of her family followed pretty rapidly. And my dad's white, and he split really early on. Um, So I grew up in an extended Filipino family. The language in my family sounded like this. That means hard is the head of Linda. Oh, my. (laughs) And um, and it was an immigrant family and had a lot of uh, crazy things that happen in a lot of immigrant families with, you know, a million people living in the same house. I feel really fortunate to have grown up in that family and with that extended family and particularly with my grandma. But yeah, that was my childhood. And like a lot of immigrant families, um, I didn't learn. To, I understand Tagalog, especially when people are mad. I understand it, but not as well as I could. And I don't speak it, and neither do my cousins. There was this idea that if we learned to speak it, there was a fear that we'd have an accent. That's what my grandma told me. Um, and they wanted us to be Americans that did that had no accent at all. Of course, now we, we know that we wouldn't have had accents, but still that was one of their fears. It's kind of sad. 
So your grandmother was the person maybe who you spent the most time with as a kid, the family she, member? She was... Yeah, well, she was the she was kind of the person who um, sort of ran the household and was home with us, you know, when our parents were off working. And it was this big extended family, and so she was really, really, really important to us. She's from Ilo Ilo, and we were all schooled with the Ilo Ilo School of Child Rearing, which is really story based. Like she'd say, Linda, when you were born, the God he made the castle for you when you're dead. When you're dead. In heaven, he made a castle for you to live in, and it's made of gold bricks. It's so beautiful, Linda, but every time you are bad, he takes one brick, and your castle is getting very, very small. She would do that, and sometimes she'd just look at me and make uh, the symbol you do with your uh, finger and thumb to show how something's really small. That's all she'd do. It's just, that's how small your house after you are dead is going to be. (laughs) (laughs) We'll wrap up with Linda Barry after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor, and I'm a medical enthusiast, and we create Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week, I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest, tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. Hi, this is Felix Contreras from NPR Music's Alt-Latino Podcast. As part of our Black History Month coverage, we take a look at the Afro-Latin roots of reggaeton and its rise over the last decade to become one of the most listened-to musical genres on the planet. To check it out, download Alt-Latino from wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Linda Barry, is a writer and cartoonist. She's published dozens of books. Her latest is called Making Comics. It's an illustrated guide on how to make comics. Let's get back into our interview. What, when you got to college and learned about the experiences of all these people who had had very different experiences than you, what was something you learned about that you immediately thought was great? Well, you know, what it was, was when I met my teacher, Marilyn Frasca. And the way I met her was, I I used to model for life drawing classes. And I I got into it by accident, because my roommate modeled, I didn't know what it was, I'd never taken a life drawing class, but she modeled and she made four bucks an hour, right, which was a lot of money in 1974. And so one day I was sitting in the cafeteria, and one of the drawing professors mixed me up with her and saw me and said, you model, right? And I go, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, well, my, my model just canceled. Come on, you know, can you can you model? I have a class waiting. I'm like, sure. And so I followed him. And I didn't understand that in life drawing classes, there's this whole protocol where you take your clothes off like behind some curtain and you wear a kimono and you come out and you look very together and take the kimono off and hold this pose. The only naked uh, posing I had seen was Playboy, right? So I took my clothes off right Right there, like kicked my underpants off my my foot and like, what do you want me to do? And he looked kind of, I remember him looking kind of shocked and everybody else looking kind of shocked. And so I stood on this little table thing and he said, can you uh, do some quick poses? And I said, sure. And I started doing these Playboy poses. <laughs> 
because I just didn't know better. And he, at one point, he asked me to tone it down. (laughs) 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 But anyway, it turned out that I was a really great model because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Medusa. And I used to practice holding still like I had turned into stone. And it was during that time that I would model that I found that I could really watch people while they were drawing me. I mean, even if they were drawing my face and staring straight into my eyes, they couldn't see me watching them. And there was something about being on that end of drawing and watching how people did life drawing. And then uh, one of the professors, so I modeled for everybody, and one of the professors was this teacher named Marilyn Frasca, who smoked, everybody smoked the whole time while you know, while they were teaching. That was a time when people smoked while they were, you know, decorating cakes and doing surgery. It didn't matter. Everybody was smoking. And there was something about the her, the way she taught that the drawings in her class were more far out and strange, and I couldn't tell what she was doing that was so different. And that's when I decided I didn't want to be modeling for her class. I wanted to be in her class. And that that was the first time I met a teacher You know, you always just sort of take your teachers for granted that they're there and they're going to show you something. But it was the first time I had a teacher where I really felt like I wanted to know what uh, she was about. I wanted to know how she saw the world and I wanted to get something from her. And I feel like the work I'm doing now is directly related to everything that I learned from her at that time at the Evergreen State College. Did you show your work to your family? No. And not only that, they wouldn't have been interested The only person who actually looked at my work one time was my little brother, Mark. I had drawn this picture. It was a comic, and there was a little girl standing. The the image was a little girl standing on a a chair, and she was praying to a a hanging light bulb. That was something that I had. You know what I still do to this day, weirdly? But I used to think that anything that had light in it had God in it. Um, so she was. That's where she she'd just go to this light bulb to pray. Anyway, so there's this drawing, and my little brother goes, Linda is this drawing supposed to be symbolic? And I went, well, and he goes, tell me in a minute my show's on. He didn't want to know until the commercial came on and then forgot that he wanted to hear it. But I was lucky because they really weren't interested. So they never, I never had that conflict of what do you, what does your family think? Because they didn't. When you write, and this book and many of your books have a lot of text for comics. Mm-hmm. Do you write on a piece of, paper with a pencil or do you do you write on a computer word processor or uh do you write straight into the straight into the drawing and then ink it i don't ink it you're what you're seeing in my work is first draft so i do it with ink right there and if i make a mistake or i'm not happy with what i did i'll draw the whole thing over but for me it's like a live performance and just like you and i speaking now and this is uh, i owe this to my teacher marilyn frasca but it's as if i get into a certain state of mind and i tend to write very slowly i don't mean like I think of the word and then write it slowly. I mean, I literally write the alphabet very slowly and I'm and I try I do this trick in my head where I try to only hear the next word that I'm going to write. I don't want to know more than the next word and then as I'm writing that word it's like I just listen for the next one. And then sometimes at that point the it's almost like the screen goes dark or the sto- the story just stops and then at that point I'll start drawing. 
Um, and then while I'm drawing, the story starts up again. So everything happens. The stuff that you're seeing in, in my work, there's nothing that's penciled. It's not drawn out beforehand. It's first draft. But for every page that you see in one of my books, there's probably 10 other pages. It's not that they didn't make it in. Um, yeah, they didn't make it in, but it's not like there was something wrong with them. It's just that I just make an enormous amount of, if you're just doing everything that way, you end up with an enormous amount of work versus this idea, if you've ever had to write a bio, for example, and they tell you, we just want it to be 250 words, and you try to do it on a computer, that can take you hours, right? Because you're just like hitting that delete button, trying to make the sentence just right or you can skip the middle man and just write it by hand <laughs> on a piece of paper <laughs> so I've, I've just learned to work that way and I have I, I've never been good at doing roughs or sketches beforehand it has to be it has to be live it's in that imperfection where the soul of the whole thing happens to be Chris Ware talks about, um, he's, he's in love with snowflakes and snow. He's really fascinated by them. And also, in, uh, in particular, how snowflakes have to form around some piece of grit or a piece of dust. And I do think that there's something ab about that imperfection, that thing that's a little bit out of your control, that to somehow maintain maintain a place for that, somehow in the, in the imperfection that that living thing is, the, deep, the deeper thing is, and often we won't see it until years later when we look at something. Let's talk about story for a second, because story is something that is a really important part of making a lot of kinds of comics. And it's something that is covered pretty extensively in this book and, you know, isn't a part of, is much less a part of drawing, for example. Uh, which is, you know, was, was one of the subjects of one of your previous books. How do you access story in a way where you are not asking yourself uh, to be in control and get it right? Well, one of the things is that everybody's working with stories all day long. I'm, I'm doing this book tour with Chris Ware right now, and he pointed out that all, that's all we do all day long is kind of rewrite the day. You know, when you lay in bed and kind of go over your day and, God, I wish I had said this. Um, and you don't just do it once. You actually imagine the whole scene. You reimagine the whole scene, and this time you reimagine yourself saying that thing and somehow sort of fixing it. Like, I think that the that stories don't exist independently. They're not just something that just flies out into the world. I really think they're connected to, to some sort of need. In the same way, um, our kidneys sort of developed. <laughs> I always compare I always compare this work to kidneys. I don't know why. I used to do it to the liver, but I just feel like when people picture a liver, they're just turned off and kidneys are cuter somehow. Um, but I feel like... <laughs> I'm, I'm glad like, you have a hierarchy of internal organ cuteness. <laughs> well, I, my liver is gorgeous personally, but most people are flipped out by their livers. My but, spleen um, is like a golden retriever puppy. <laughs> I'm whistling. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do think that this whole thing, everything that we call the arts, I feel like has an absolute biological function. And I think of them as our kind of external organs, as um, something that, that we need to keep us, I don't know, together. And um, story storytelling is a huge part of that. Um, so the for me, with that belief, 
basically, it's as if I turn it over to another part of myself. So it's sort of the dreaming part of myself. But it's amazing how fast, whether you're writing something autobiographical or, or fiction, basically all you need are a place and a character and often an object, a thing. I have a student who works with people in prison and there is a game that is played in prisons all over called Cities. And it's usually played at night and people are shouting to each other through the vents. But basically what they do is they say, my name's Carla and I work in a nail salon. And then somebody will yell what the problem is. And you're a junkie and you need a fix. And then another person will yell something and then they all play the roles and start making this story up. Uh, she actually figured out how to make a game of it that we used in my class, which is you make a stack of index cards that have places, a stack of index cards that have problems or a desire, and a stack of index cards that have characters. And then you just put three together, and it's as if instantly a story just comes to mind. So we're storytelling people. It isn't anything we have to learn how to do. What we do have to oftentimes learn how to do is set the conditions for that. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, you'll see that in making comics and in my other books that I talk a lot about using a timer because there is something about having a very limited amount of time to tell a story that allows the story to, uh, to form this structure. You can do it faster in five minutes than you can if you have five days to think about it. And people who do improv and do it well are perfect examples of that. What are the special qualities of comics? What are the things that comics are particularly great at relative to prose or film or purely visual art? Well, they're really fast. That's one thing. And they also allow for a different kind of memory or thinking. I'm thinking right now about working with, I was able to, I was lucky at the university, I got to work with some law students who were part of the Innocence Project. So, you know, Making a Murderer, you know, that the Netflix mm-hmm. series. This was a, this is the group, that group of uh, people that worked with that. And I got them to take some index cards and draw the central scene from a case they were working on. I gave them some really basic, like rudimentary ways to draw people, like just super, super, almost like little kids. But to draw that central scene and then to draw a scene that happened before that scene and a scene that happened after. And then I'd say, so now let's draw the scene that's in between these two scenes. And when you start to do that, with drawing, drawing these scenes, all of a sudden you start to realize the piece of information that's missing or a piece of information that you didn't realize you had until you drew it. It's as if there's another part of you that has access, has access to being understood. I found the same thing when I was working with medical students um, at Penn State Hershey to just watch them drawing um, themselves in a surgical procedure or... um, (laughs) This one woman came in, uh, was it a, a, a medical student, um, and I had them draw a scene from a scene from the day before that really stood out to them. And it, she drew this picture of herself actually holding a living human heart. She got to hold this heart while this woman was having something done. And then afterwards, and then what happened afterwards and what happened afterwards, and then the last frame was uh, the woman coming out of uh, 
of her anesthesia and then meeting this medical student and saying to her, I, I hear you held my heart. I mean, like, the, but the, the drawings themselves, even though they look like, you know, Beavis and Butthead kind of, I mean, it's, you can't really believe you're looking at a surgical procedure and it does look like eighth graders are drawing it. But there is uh, some information there that is able to come through that is very different than the kind of information that comes through from talking. So just in terms of I don't know, uh, inquiry, just in terms of, of trying to understand something in depth, the, uh, the act of adding drawing, in particular comic drawing, can just get you somewhere deeper in a way that, that you, you can't get to with just words. You just can't get there with just words. Linda, I'm so glad you came back on Bullseye. Congratulations on the new book, <laughs> Making Comics, and congratulations on your genius certification. Uh, oh, thank you so much. I love talking to you. And um, from when, when I was at Max FunCon and I got to meet the people who are fans of, of your, you and your show, I just felt like there was such a, a solid, cool family. So I'm delighted to be one of the third or fourth cousins of this family. Linda Barry. Her new book, Making Comics, is out now from the great publisher Drawn and Quarterly. It's one of a number of books she's written about creating Uh, including Syllabus, Notes from an Accidental Professor, and Picture This, the Nearsighted Monkey book. Uh, They are absolutely breathtakingly inspiring. I cannot, whether or not you think of yourself as a drawer or artist of any kind, you cannot help but be inspired by these incredible books. They are animated by her fun, lively, hilarious voice and her passion for drawing pictures of animals smoking cigarettes, but they are also incredibly instructive and will get you to put one foot in front of the other to make things in a way that that few things I've ever read have. They're really special. So check out her work. And of course, her decades of legendary work in alternative comics is also great. Uh, But she's been teaching lately. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, uh, where, this week, our colleague Chewy brought avocados from his dad's avocado orchard in Temecula. So, thanks for the avocados, Jesus, and Dad Ambrosio. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer and brings the avocados. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. You can find a collection of music that he has made for Bullseye on Bandcamp, and it is Pay What You Will. Just search there for uh, DJW Bullseye. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we have decades of interviews in our archives at MaximumFun.org or in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.